Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning in Washington, D.C., where we're joined for the first time on the show by Shannon Tiazi, who is the China editor for the amazingly good, mind-blowingly good uh, website, iPad app. I'm not sure what you guys do, but The Diplomat Asia Pacific. Uh, it's The Diplomat is just great. So for anybody who wants to follow Asia Pacific news, not just about China, but really the entire region, this is the place to go. Uh, a very good morning. Thank you for joining us on the show, Shannon. Thank you for having me on, guys. It's a pleasure. Well, the reason why we've invited Shannon is because she is a prolific writer on China, on all things China. But in recently, she's been writing quite a bit about uh, Africa. And that's come up in, in a number of different ways. And in part because if you cover the Chinese foreign policy beat, as Shannon seems to do, uh, well, listen, Africa is going to come up. So there was one article in particular that came out on February 27th uh, of this year. Uh, what's it like to have China build you a port? Well, ask Cameroon. And so uh, first things first, how did you get on to writing about a Cameroonian port all the way from Washington, D.C.? <laughs> Always a fun question. Um, so basically, I've been paying a lot of attention to China's broader maritime Silk Road project. Uh, this is something that's been a real hallmark of Xi Jinping's foreign policy initiative. And a main portion of that is China basically funding the development of ports and port-related infrastructure in a number of countries um, from Southeast Asia through the Indian Ocean, through the African coast, um, even potentially into Europe. So that's been on my mind a lot is what does it mean to have China build a port? What are the implications of that? What are the pros? What are the cons? And um, I saw this article in Xinhua announcing that this port project that China had um, been working on since 2011 in Cameroon had just finished. So I thought, perfect. Um, this is a nicely timed case study of what it can mean to have China build you a port and what that can look like. And so what was, you know, kind of you, it was a very interesting article to read because it, you know, you, you really do um, look at both pros and cons. Um, and like, so, so how, how did, how does it break down? Like kind of like you, you know, kind of what, what are some of the pros and what are some of the cons that, that you identified? Sure. Um, I would say from the perspective of these local state governments, the real pro is that they get funding to develop their infrastructure in a way that might not be possible otherwise. I mean, this port, um, the Kribi port was estimated to have a total cost of around $1 billion, and Cameroon's GDP per year is only around $30 billion. So this is the sort of project it would be very difficult for the government to fund without assistance. And the Chinese um, Export-Import Bank gave them a preferential loan for 85% of that $1 billion. Now, of course, this is a loan. Um, they will have to pay it back. I wasn't able to find the specific terms of the loan, so who knows what sort of interest deal they got. Um, but it does make this possible for Cameroon to develop its first-ever deep-water port uh, so that it can start exporting particularly iron um, and some of the other natural resources that they have. And really, the idea from the government officials that talked about the port is they see this as a turning point for um, Cameroon's economy and can kind of help them to boost 
their GDP to create more jobs and things like that. Um, in terms of the cons, I'm assuming most of your listeners are very familiar with the, the caveats that come with having Chinese major construction in an African country. Um, you have concerns about uh, you know, environmental damages. Um, you also have that general tug that you get anywhere when you're having a modernization project where you have people who are being displaced, people who are not benefiting from the project, upset that their homes are being bulldozed, that their shops are being bulldozed. Um, and then you also have the question of how much is this project actually benefiting the locals? Um, you had accusations that the Chinese companies involved were basically importing their own workers from China and not actually providing employment for a lot of the local Cameroonians. So those are kind of the general pros and cons. Well, I'd like to get your take on on the kind of broader infrastructure issue, because obviously China's infrastructure building boom is not just an African phenomenon. Uh, here, I'm in, I live in Southeast Asia. Uh, the Chinese have recently announced the Asian Infrastructure Bank. Uh, this is a $50 billion bank designed explicitly at, largely at, at South and Southeast Asia. Um, and so let's kind of, staying on your pros and cons theme, but also kind of trying to pick into the to the Chinese worldview on this. You know, the Chinese, they look at development measured in part by, by infrastructure. So you talk about places like Tibet and Xinjiang, and whereas the West focuses on the local culture and preserving religion and, and those types of civil, civil rights and political rights, the Chinese, you know, innocently say, well, look, we've brought them roads and, and water and buildings and power plants and, you know, and it's checking off all the, the boxes. And in part because that's what the Chinese themselves over the past 30 years value in their own development. I mean, they, the infrastructure development in China is mind-boggling. I mean... 30 years ago, when I first went to China, there was no roads that were, you know, that could handle 16-lane highways. There weren't, you know, ports that were running 24 hours a day. The infrastructure was crap. And so China measures its own progress in terms of infrastructure. So when it goes abroad and does these acts of, you know, how it portrays itself of benevolence in some ways of offering low-interest loans to help, you know, win-win for the developing world, uh, that's how they see it oftentimes. But then you have people like Howard French... Uh, and, and a growing number of critics who say, you know what, this is a little bit of a shell game here because the money all stays in Beijing, the contractors, the designs, the resources all come from the Chinese side, and the locals don't always benefit. In fact, they can get this infrastructure cheaper through other international non-governmental organization loans. So the Chinese aren't always the best way, and they, they don't always benef- benefit the local population. So I'd be interested to take, get your take on these, these two worldviews that are out there. One is the Chinese worldview, and two is the, the critics of this Chinese worldview that seem to be becoming increasingly loud. So I think the Chinese worldview is China very much portrays themselves as um, an ally of the developing world. They still routinely describe themselves as a developing country. So when they engage with um, countries, whether in Africa or Southeast Asia, South Asia, they are coming to them, um, at least, you know, politically, when they talk to them diplomatically, they're saying we're equals. We're both developing countries. We both have the same goals. Um, Obviously, that is just flat out not true when you're looking at the size of the political cloud and the economic cloud that Beijing brings to the table to say that they are equals in any meaningful sense with a lot of these you know, smaller African nations. Okay. Um. Yeah, but they will tell you that there are more poor people in China today than there are in all of Africa. 
And that is, yeah. that is absolutely true. I mean, this is where it gets very complicated. Mm-hmm. And that's really um, what China is uh, bringing to the table here is they say, we understand. We understand what it's like to have, uh, you know, massive amounts of poor people in your country um, to have infrastructure that doesn't work or isn't there and to need to develop it. So they are basically saying, look, the West is not going to pay attention to you unless you're willing to meet their standards for human rights, uh, for these political conditions. We are going to offer you no strings attached loan that's going to help you build up this infrastructure because we, as a fellow developing country, know that that's what you really need. Uh, That's kind of the angle that they're approaching this from is saying, look, we know what you guys want. We know what you need to develop your economy, and we're willing to give it to you. Well, one of the issues that, that I wonder about sometimes, especially when one starts talking about these infrastructure development deals in the context of a bigger project like the, the Maritime Silk Road, is the decision-making about the specific pro- projects and to which extent the decision-making lies with African governments and with China. Um, you know, kind of generally, you know, kind of the, the way I understand it, you know, kind of these African governments make decisions, make their own development decisions, and then, and then put out you know, kind of the call for financing and, you know, and obviously then to have the actual work, construction work done, um, which is then supported by China. But in the cases where, you know, kind of these these projects are also supposed to fit into um, a, a larger kind of geopolitical project like the Maritime Silk Road, do, do you see a kind of a muddying of that division? Or do, like in terms of the placement and the planning of, of particular projects, do you, do you foresee that China is going to get more influence in that decision-making process at some stage in the future. And that's really the million-dollar question, um, and that's what a lot of the critics of this project are concerned about. Um, When China is going to countries um, like Sri Lanka, um, the Maldives, some of the Southeast Asian countries, and specifically saying, we want you on the Maritime Silk Road, Um, where can we invest? You know, they, they have an idea already um, the Chinese side does of what they want to do. Um, So the question is, how much is that influencing the government decision? And I don't really have an answer for you. I think, honestly, probably the goals are very similar. Because if the Chinese government says, look, we want to have, you know, a deep water port with larger cargo capacity built in Sri Lanka, uh, the Sri Lankan government probably wants that as well. Um, They probably would like to have a larger port. They would like to have the bigger infrastructure built up. And the fact that they, at least the previous Sri Lankan government, was so willing to accept this sort of investment really speaks to that. Um, The thornier question is, what does it mean going forward in terms of how this new infrastructure is being used? Um, And that's where things get really tricky. You have this idea that maybe China secretly wants to use these ports as um, potential bases or even just supply stations for the PLA Navy um, and other potential offshore military activities. Um, And would this amount of Chinese investment that went into this project give them the right to do that? Uh, And that's why you haven't seen some of the larger regional powers like India buy into the Maritime Silk Road because they're not quite sure how much influence it would give China within their own country. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the Maritime Silk Road and, and just kind of back up and, and kind of explain, first of all, what it is. And, and in reference in particular to Africa, and you wrote an article uh, in, in late January, China's Maritime Silk Road, don't forget Africa. Uh, and you talk about how the, the Silk Road is expanding f- from, you know, beyond Asia, which is where the traditional kind of trading, trading lines are for China, all the way to the African coast. So just walk us through what, what is the policy, this new policy that was announced by, by the senior leadership in Beijing towards the end of last year that's called the Maritime Silk Road and why it's, it, it is potentially important for Africa. Sure. So this project was actually first announced by Xi Jinping while he was in Southeast Asia. Uh, he announced that China wanted to redevelop this Maritime Silk Road which, of course, is a callback to um, history and this sort of um, mythos that China has built up of it always being an entirely peaceful, benevolent trading nation. So that's really what they're tapping into, the sense that China's prosperity can be shared freely among the region. So uh, the way it's envisioned, it would be a string of ports and other trading hubs that would stretch from kind of southeast China down through southeast Asia, through the Malacca Straits into the Indian Ocean. And then from there, um, it would touch specifically, if you look at the official map in uh, Xinhua, it would hit Nairobi and then head up north over the East African coast, round the Horn of Africa, and then travel through the Red Sea up to the Mediterranean. Um, and most of the attention has focused on what this means for Southeast Asia. Um, you know, obviously you mentioned the Asian infrastructure investment bank, which is sort of seen as a vehicle for actually putting Beijing's money where its mouth is in terms of developing this maritime silk road. Uh, What I wanted to point out in my article is that this does have potential implications for Africa. You have at least least Kenya. Uh, We know that China envisions Kenya as part of this maritime silk road, and they are developing um, Mombasa port, uh, which is Kenya's port that will be linked to Nairobi eventually, as well as the capitals Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, South Sudan, and that those countries are going to be linked by Gasu, Chinese railroad um, project. So I wanted to look at what this does actually mean for Africa, and you have a lot of ports being developed by Chinese companies in Africa that are on the Silk, the Maritime Silk Road route, but haven't been specifically rhetorically tied into that. And so you have ports that are directly on the route uh, in Djibouti and Tanzania, and then you have some in the southern Indian Ocean that maybe if China wanted to expand the geographical scope of this, could be included as well. You know, kind of this, this is such a, a mind-bogglingly huge project. Um, uh, do, do you, you know, kind of, do, do, does it seem like like um, African governments will be willing to actually be part of this of, of this network? Like, what, what what could be the downside to Africa? You know, in 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 actually linking themselves into into this network, if there is a downside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now, what it means to be a link in this maritime silk road isn't entirely clear at this point. Um, other than the fact that it means accepting Chinese investment to build up the infrastructure in your country, which we've already seen that a majority of governments, whether in Africa or Southeast Asia, are completely willing to do. They obviously see a lot of benefit in doing that. Um, again, the 
the question is that there's always, at least from a Western perspective and from an Indian perspective as well, there's always this sort of suspicion of what's the ulterior motive. And China likes to present itself as a benevolent power. Um, this is win-win cooperation, and we are helping our fellow you know, African brothers, our African friends. And I think there is some truth to that. This is going to help China as well, just from an economic standpoint. As it builds up infrastructure in these African countries, these Southeast Asian countries, that's going to increase China's market access to these countries. It'll be able to ship more of its goods to these countries and be able to more easily um, import the natural resources that it likes to get from Africa because the ports will have bigger capacity, so it'll be easier for them to ship them out. Uh, you know, in terms of the maybe more security implications, again, that's really not clear at this point. I personally don't really buy into the argument that these are secret you know, PLA Navy bases um, and that you need to worry about that. But there is a question of what does giving this huge amount of economic influence over a major infrastructure project do to your country's ability to operate its foreign policy independently, uh, particularly for the Southeast Asian countries where you have the South China Sea issue and the, the territorial disputes going on there. You know, for example, if Vietnam were to buy into the Maritime Silk Road, which it hasn't. Yet. Which it never yeah. will. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> exactly. let's just be straight about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that would be a trade off. That would mean Vietnam would have to sort of be a little bit more friendly towards China and its own foreign policy. And I don't think we're going to see that. You know, when we talk about the Maritime Silk Road, and, and I'm going to speak to you, Shannon, I'm, I'm assuming you're an American, right? Yeah. Okay. So from one American to another American, Cobus, this has nothing to do with you. <laughs> Um, is, you know, it makes me sad a little bit because, you know, Tom Friedman wrote this book, you know, that used to be us. I think that some, some, to some effect that used to be the title that that's what he wrote. And, uh, and it's this idea that, you know, okay, for it's, it's controversial, it's complicated, but I'll give the Chinese credit for one thing that they're thinking big. I mean, when we talk about, you know, big ideas like the Maritime Silk Road or even a $12 billion rail project in Nigeria or the, the, the you know, the cross-country East Africa railway systems, these are really big, you know, very much life-changing types of infrastructure projects. And that's how Americans used to see the world. We thought big. We thought put a man on the moon. We're going to do the Marshall Plan in Europe. We're going to, you know, do the Peace Corps. We're, we don't think like that anymore. That used to be us. And I'm curious, as somebody who's based in, you know, Washington, D.C., which is the, the belly, and when I say the belly, I mean the bile and the, you know, the awful <laughs> part of the belly that leads to the colon. You know what comes out of the colon. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm curious, we've had other people who are based in Washington who do China-Africa studies, and one of the things that they say is that they feel like they're talking to a wall because this sense of all the things that you're writing about, these huge, ambitious projects, not only in China, in Africa, but China in Southeast Asia, China in Latin America, China in the Caribbean, China everywhere. And Americans in the Beltway, a lot of the political elites don't seem to understand what's really happening. And I'm curious to see when you go into the, the little hot dog cocktail circuit and you talk to people about what you write about every day, do they understand? I think what happens in the Beltway is people get tunnel vision. Um, and all they want to talk about is the current geopolitical hotspot. Um, so the Ukraine crisis, 
uh, Iraq and Syria with ISIL or ISIS or IS or whatever acronym you want to use. Um, and of course, people want to talk about China, but in terms of this, you know, the, the geopolitical competition with the U.S. So whenever you get people talking about Africa or Latin America, um, it's in the context of competition between China and the U.S. And people just aren't really interested in Africa for Africa's sake or Latin America for Latin America's sake because they just don't see a lot of geopolitical stake there. Um, and I think that that is a vacuum that China stepped into quite nicely. Um, and it's, it's been involved in Africa for, you know, since the days of Mao Zedong. Um, Mao really pushed this sort of you know, proletarian brotherhood uh, between the, the fellow victims of imperialism. Uh, it's just hard to get people in Washington interested in these issues and especially interested in really understanding what China's vision means for the region as opposed to what it means for the United States. You know, Cobus, you know, oh, Cobus, one, one quick, I'd like to get your take on this because yeah. Shannon has, has, you know, articulated in a way that I, I have struggled and in a very good way where they, the, the key difference between the United States and China with regards to Africa, that China is taking it seriously on its merits. And the United States is incapable of doing that because we don't see it that way. In fact, I'm not even articulating it as well as Shannon did. But I think the way that Shannon articulated is exactly the reason why the United States is failing in Africa and why the Chinese are being more effective. I won't say succeeding, but at least they are more effective. Yes, um, I, I would actually, you know, kind of, I completely agree with Shannon, and um, and I would actually, you know, kind of also like add something to that in the sense that I think. Both the U.S. and Europe tend to have a little bit of a blind spot when it comes to the 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 realities of living with with systemic underdevelopment. Um, you know, kind of, I, and that that's why I think so frequently the conversations they're having with Africa feel so off from an African perspective because it's only a, a focus on. Uh, on human rights, as if human rights only means not being dragged out of your house by the police, you know, kind of only means um, you know, kind of freedom of association, for example, and doesn't, you know, kind of, and and the 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 focus on human rights doesn't focus on, for example, the right to clean water, which is that there is always this kind of lip service being paid to that, um, but you know, kind of no awareness of what that means on a daily of living with with kind of bad water on a daily basis, um, and I think in that's that. It, when, once you kind of factor that in to to how China deals with Africa, then it becomes clear why, for example, both sides, as Shannon has pointed out, both sides are so mesmerized by big infrastructure, for example, because they, in 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 the living memory in both China and Africa, there is a, a very strong memory of having no roads, no infrastructure, no telephones, no nothing, um, and you know, kind of, and not only that as a as a kind of this monolithic fact, but as a daily lived reality, grinding on with no phone. Still tomorrow there will be no phone. You know, kind of that 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 reality is a shared reality, and it's not shared with Europe and, and the U.S., which means that Europe and the U.S. is just blind to that, um, and I. Think I think that is that that is a crucial disconnect where where you the US is really only interested in big spectacular kind of like geopolitical issues and kind of big game kind of politics um, whereas you know kind of with, with very little kind of awareness of of the of daily life
life and especially these kind of infrastructure related problems that, yeah. that block people getting ahead yeah um it seems to me that, that that's one of the main issues no i i absolutely agree shen what are your final thoughts on this uh, i would say that kobus touched on a very important point which is how you define human rights and that's what China brings to the table is an understanding of human rights exactly as Kobus described. It's lifting people out of poverty. Uh, obviously, from a Western perspective, China has its human rights problems in terms of you know, political oppression, but they have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, and that's what they're offering Africa. They're saying, look, you know, and China will always say, sure, democracy, that's great, but first, we need to build the roads. First, we need to get our people jobs. First, we need to raise the per capita GDP. And that's where Africa is right now. Those are the sorts of things they want to do. And so they are turning to China for help with that rather than the U.S., which is focused more on let's make a democracy in your country. Which is important at some level, too. We won't denigrate that entirely, just so I don't get accused for being too anti-American and not allowed back into my own country. So I, I have to start worrying about those kinds of things, speaking of human rights. But uh, Shannon you know, is... Uh, oh, go uh, ahead. I think... Sorry to interrupt you, Eric. Um, I, I think that the, the issue is not is, is not so much even that um, that the U.S. Is, is, you know, kind of... Is, you know, no, I don't think anyone is saying that U.S. is pushing human rights too much. I think that frequently in Africa, the, the issue is more that it is couched frequently in very abstract terms um, or, what you know, kind of... It, it is kind of put into projects that that seem kind of surface level and, and and frivolous, you know, kind of from a from a, a perspective of people with with you know kind of like bad water on a daily basis. So you know, it's it's things like you know kind of supporting a free press or supporting NGOs or so on, which are crucial, you know, kind of. And from our perspective, we we realize how crucial they are to democracy. But from a from a, a situation where the roads are falling apart, they seem like the icing and not the cake. Uh, so I think that right. the, there's there's a kind of a, a disconnect in in communicating the importance of these issues frequently. Oh, the irony, because the American infrastructure is actually not something that we should be that proud of these days ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, I think we might have more in common with Africa in the next 10 years than we'd like to think that we do. Hey, listen, everybody, Shannon is the China editor for The Diplomat. You can read her uh, her really interesting pieces. And frankly, the, the quantity that you crank out is really just mind-boggling. Uh, thediplomat.com. Uh, again, if you're interested in all forms of Asia-Pacific news, uh, they cover, uh, you know, from Oceania, South Asia, Southeast Asia, all the way into the central part. It is just, you know, it's an amazing resource. Uh, I subscribe to their iPad app. You know, I have no vested interest in these guys, but at the same time, I'm just kind of throwing my hat down to say uh, it's really good. And part of it is because uh, Shannon, you and your writing. So, and they also have a podcast, by the way, which is also which is very, very good. So, uh, another good Asia and China related podcast. Hey, Shannon, at the end of every show, one of the things we like to do is kind of drop people off at the front door of your social media that you may be uh, contributing to. So in addition to writing for The Diplomat, are you also on Twitter or uh, other places where people can follow you? Yeah, you guys can follow me on, on Twitter. It's just, you know, at Shannon Tiesi. Pretty easy. <laughs> okay, Shannon Tiesi, that is it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And Cobus, if people want to follow you on Twitter, um, where's the best way they can do that? 
Um, I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China in Africa headlines almost every day. And uh, also, Kobus and I are updating our Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, almost 18 to about 24 hours a day. Every three or four hours, we're posting headlines there. Over 250,000 people are engaged in this fantastic conversation. Great way to stay on top of the news. You can just follow it. It gets into your feed. Uh, also, if you don't really want the everyday treatment, we've now launched a brand new weekly newsletter where we kind of select the four or five best stories of the week. And that goes out every Monday morning uh, U.S. time, uh, you know, obviously around the world. But uh, just go over to our website at China africaproject.com and you can sign up right there or you can also sign up on Facebook and of course if you want to follow this podcast head over to iTunes or you can find us on SoundCloud we're pretty much all over the place and you can just follow us with your favorite podcast application so we'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast thank you so much for listening